Our Lord invites us to journey through this upcoming season of Lent with the one who suffered and died. He invites us to know that through his death and his resurrection, forgiveness is now possible for all who repent. So let us boldly approach the throne of God where we will find grace and mercy. And together, let's pray together the prayer of confession. Gracious God, our sins are too heavy to carry, too real to hide, too, too deep to undo. We our lips tremble to name what our hearts can no longer bear and what has become for us a consuming fire of judgment. Set us free from a past that we cannot change. Open us to a future in which we can be changed and grant us grace to grow more and more in your likeness. Through Jesus Christ, the light of the world. Amen. Hear the good news of the gospel. In Jesus Christ, we have redemption through his sacrifice. Whatever you have done, whatever you have failed to do, whoever you are, whoever you wish you were, but are not, you are accepted, you are welcome. You're washed clean, you're raised up, you're forgiven, you are set free. So friends, believe the good news of the gospel. In Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. But together let's join in greeting one another. Morning. morning. Welcome to worship on this beautiful day here at Church of the Palms. We're glad that you're with us. If you are local or if you come to us from far away, we're glad that you are here and we hope that you will find this to be a place of welcome. We uh, have great things going on in the life of this church, a, a very full bulletin that uh, we invite you to explore and discover how you might want to connect with us here at Church of the Palms. We would love for you to fill out the friendship pads which are in the pews and pass those along to the neighbor next to you and 
Hopefully you'll note those folks who are sitting near you so that you can continue in your conversation. We, uh, as I mentioned, have lots of things going on. Just want to make you aware of a few things that are of immediate interest. Uh, first of all, our crop walk is today. Uh, many of our folks will be participating in the crop walk. This is a, a chance for you to support and for us all to support uh, the efforts toward alleviating world hunger. So if you see somebody out there with a little registration form or a sponsorship sheet, uh, welcome them gladly into your life and, and perhaps uh, participate with them as they walk to bring uh, awareness to this very important issue. Our Life Tree Cafe continues today, though it will be in a different spot. We will be, uh, they will be meeting in the chapel reception room after our service today, talking about the issue of forgiveness. So if you uh, would like to learn more about Life Tree Cafe, that's a perfect place to go, and that will be right after our service today. Our Lenten season begins this Ash Wednesday, this coming Wednesday. We will be uh, worshiping here in the sanctuary at 630 and that will be preceded, for those who wished, uh, with a dinner over in the Campus Center, a, a very simple meal as we begin our Lenten season together. So we invite you to come and join us for that. Our men's ministry retreat is coming up this Saturday. We'll be up at the Day Spring Conference Center for just the day from 8 until 4 on Saturday. We would love to have you join us, gentlemen, to uh, be uh, together in fellowship and to encourage one another and to be inspired as we seek to take our Lenten journey together. Next week is the wonderful day of daylight savings time change. <laughs> and uh, I think that means you've got to move that spring forward. You've got to move that clock forward. I think we lose an hour this coming Sunday. It's always a welcome thing for a pastor. So um, <laughs> we hope that you'll join us for that. Our student sponsorships are still being received. There are student sponsorship cards in your Pews, we learned about that last week, a challenge for our whole congregation to come alongside of our students as they prepare for their summer trips this coming summer, so we hope you'll join us for that uh, participation. And then finally, our adult education classes are always available for you throughout the course of today and throughout the week. A new class begins today called the Seven Experiment, and we'd love to have you join us for that as well. And today is Legacy Sunday. Today is a day when we have the chance to uh, honor and celebrate and participate in thinking about how we can continue to keep the church within our own stewardship, not just in this life, but throughout uh, beyond this life as we prepare to make arrangements in our own estate planning and such. And uh, we are grateful to have the Legacy Society brunch immediately after our service. Those of, the, those of you who are part of the Legacy Society who have made those plans and preparations already are invited to come next door at 12 o'clock in the Campus Center, 12.15 for a brunch. And uh, John Mercier is here today who is the chair of our Legacy Giving Committee and has a little to share with us about this opportunity for you all. We've celebrated uh, many lunches with members of the Legacy Society. I'm not sure, but I'm pleased to be here as the chair of the Legacy Giving Ministry. Uh, we have formally called this Plan Giving. Um, we have, as you know, been blessed with a foundation ministry that those who have gone before us have fostered, and we just celebrated its 30th anniversary. Uh, earnings, as you probably already know, from legacy gifts generally go to the church uh, to support mission benevolences, uh, the fund capital improvements, and to administer other designated funds. The church has benefited so many ways through the years from grants made by the foundation, but this morning I just want to look a little bit at the other side, the giving side or the wills, and also how you can uh, be a part of the legacy society. We might consider that there are really uh, three pockets of, of, of giving to the church. We're most familiar with annual stewardship giving, uh, which we usually give from our, our earnings. And then there's also, on occasion, capital giving, uh, when and if that's encouraged, uh, from our accumulated wealth. And then the third pocket is the legacy gifts from our, from our estates. Today's bulletin inserts describe some of the vehicles for giving, 
and also being a part of the Legacy Society. Uh, but let me mention last wills and testaments uh, because so many people do not have wills and most of, of the deferred gifts that the church and most other organization uh, gifts uh, come by the way of a will. Uh, speaking of wills, you recognize a lot of people that never bothered to do a will and ended up in kind of messy situations, including um, a couple presidents, uh, Abraham Lincoln, and he was a lawyer. Uh, uh, Picasso, Pablo Picasso, uh, Howard Hughes, uh, President Kenny, Kennedy uh, had not updated his will since his children was born and since he became president. And so those are all interesting stories by themselves. Um, but then there's uh, Henny Youngman, anybody remember him, the famous uh, comedian on, uh, for one-liners? On his 91st birthday, he passed out his last will and testament, and there were several things on it, but I thought the highlight was uh, to my nephew Irving, who still keeps asking me to mention him in my will. Hello, Irving. He's got some better ones, too, but we don't have time. Uh, your Legacy Giving Committee has been at work for about two years, and with session in the foundation, uh, has developed the appropriate uh, policies and, and guidelines, uh, as well as the uh, inserts that are in your uh, this morning's uh, bulletin. Uh, one is the Stewardship Bill of Rights, and the second is how to become a member of the Legacy Society. The core of our legacy giving ministry is education with general information, not legal advice, and you are encouraged to consult your own advisors, always. But we will be presenting some ideas that may or may not work for you, but that may inspire others. While materials that we will be sharing should be helpful in your long range or estate planning for your family and other charities as well, we sincerely hope that you will also find a place in your heart to remember how you have been blessed by God and how you have been blessed by this church. And join me as a member of the Legacy Society. If you feel so led today, there's a return card in your bulletin also. Uh, on the screen, magic, is the tree of legacy giving with the new Legacy Society logo in the lower right-hand corner and with the uh, tree that's going to be placed uh, out in the narthex uh, when it's completed uh, to recognize uh, members of the Legacy Society. If you have any questions or you want to discuss any of this, I'll be down here by the organ um, after the service and be happy to uh, chat with you. In closing, from Deuteronomy 8, do not say to yourself, my power and the might of my own hand have gotten me this wealth. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to give wealth, so that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your ancestors as he is doing today. Thank you.
Let us pray. Most gracious and loving God, on this Transfiguration Sunday, we give you thanks for loving us at all times. We thank you for each person present here in worship, for in your grace we have been made brothers and sisters in Christ. We thank you for music that stirs our hearts and hymns that sing our faith. We thank you for scriptures read and interpreted. We thank you, O oh God, that by your grace, our ministries and missions have touched many lives with your love and care. Help us continue to equip disciples for the service of Christ, we pray. And may those we serve find in us a joyful witness to your gospel. We pray, O oh Lord, for the leaders of the world. Lead them and us into the paths of your peace. Today, we especially pray for the people of the Ukraine. May we find ways to share your abundant provisions and care so that none are left hungry or oppressed or abandoned. Be with missionaries and those who serve in the militaries, we pray. Gracious God, attach those who are ill at home or hospital with your healing hands, we pray. We lift up those who are anticipating surgery and care at hospitals and at home this coming week. We also ask that you will give your com comfort and peace to those who walk with grief. Especially, we lift up the family of Betty Helbig, who you have called home. Be present with those who are dying, we pray. Be with those who struggle with confusion, depression, or isolation. Enable us to be a meaningful part of your life, your love given to all of them, we pray. We pray all our prayers to you in the name of our Lord Jesus, who taught us to pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now we continue to worship God through our giving.
Let us pray. We give you thanks, O God, for loving us, and we love you. And we ask that you will accept these, our gifts and offerings, for we bring them to you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated as Lori and our children are making their way up here. Excellent. Good morning. So we have got to come back for that Ash Wednesday service. It is going to be awesome. From, it's designed for kids from four all the way to 94. It'll be a great intergenerational entry into Lent, and I can't wait. And I hope to see all you guys there. So we are beginning a series on forgiveness, which is fitting. There is something that we all have in common, whether we're sitting here or whether we're sitting out there or whether we're sitting up there or even up there, we all need forgiveness. We all make mistakes. So I wanted to share with you today a story that Jesus told, a parable actually, and it's on the prodigal son. And since Pastor Steve had preached on it last week, I thought he might be able to play a role in it. It's kind of a farm family, kind of a farming story. So this father had two sons, and the younger son went to the father one day and said, I am sick of the farm life. I am sick of my older brother. I am sick of you. I wish you would just die and give me all that money that I'm going to be getting so I could go live. Well, you look pretty healthy, like you might be around for a while. So can I have my money anyway? Sure. Because I love you, because I love you, you can have the money. <laughs> so the Bible tells us that this son went out and spent this money recklessly. Would you hold that for me? <laughs> on wild living. Now, wild would mean different things depending on how old you are, right? Let's just say that one day he woke up and said, I'm starving, but I don't have any money. So he went to a guy and said, could I feed your pigs? Would you pay me just to feed your pigs? And the guy said, yes, yes. It's right when that young man was feeding the pigs and wishing just wishing that he could eat the slop that he was giving to those pigs, that he hit rock bottom. And he goes, I've just got to go home. I've just got to go back to my dad and tell him that I'm sorry. I've got to go tell him that I should just be a servant, that I don't even have to be his son, that I just wish that I could have an O. <gasps> bring the best pack calf, bring the best robe, bring the best ring, put it on him and let him know that he is loved. Are we going to have a party? We're going to have a party too. A party? Wow! Do you think that this son deserves a party? Heck no, he doesn't deserve it. That's what Jesus was trying to teach us, that God was just like that father. We don't deserve the forgiveness we get, but he loves us so much that he forgives us anyway. Will you pray with me? Gracious God, we thank you for that love that we can't understand, and we thank you for forgiving us. Now, for the hard part, help us to forgive others the way that you forgive us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you.
be seated. We are continuing our series through the Apostles' Creed, and we find ourselves getting into the midst of and toward the end of our second section of the creed, the creed that, part of the creed that reflects upon the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. Last week we focused on he was crucified, dead, and buried, and today we reflect upon the phrase within the creed, he descended into hell. And with that, we will be reflecting through two passages of Scripture, first from the Gospel of John, the fourth chapter, and then also through the letter of 1 Peter. So hear the word of God. A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. His disciples had gone to the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have no bucket, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob, who gave us the well and with his sons and his flocks drank from it? Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The water that I will give will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come back. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you say that the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father seeks such as these to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. Our second lesson is from First Peter, the third chapter, verses 13 and following. Now, who will harm you if you are eager to do what is good? But even if you do suffer for doing what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear and do not be intimidated, but in your hearts sanctify Christ as Lord. Always be ready to make your defense to anyone who demands from you an accounting for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and reverence. Keep your conscience clear so that when you are maligned, those who abuse you for your good conduct in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if suffering should be God's will, than to suffer for doing evil. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring you to God. And he was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison, who in former times did not obey, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah during the building of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were saved through water. And baptism, which this prefigured, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, 
with angels, authorities, and powers made subject to him. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. By your grace and through your mercy, we pray that we may, through these words to come, be pointed to the word just read and to the word made flesh in Jesus the Christ, for we pray this in his name. Amen. Dr. David E.H. Jones, a British chemist and physicist who for years has written for the British scientific journal Nature under the pseudonym Daedalus, found himself a while ago sparking a bit of a debate in scientific and theological circles when he proposed, quite tongue-in-cheek, that perhaps there is, a way, there is a way to measure the weight of a human soul. How much, Jones cynically wondered, does the human soul actually weigh? The professor posited that perhaps there are actual scientific tests that can be applied to our effort to understand the nature of the human soul. He, he went as far as to suggest that by attaching such instruments as piezoelectric transducers, inertial navigation accelerometers, and other scientific apparatuses to a person's body, specifically to a body near death, it should be possible upon that person dying to measure the direction, velocity, and weight of the soul as it leaves the body to quantitatively determine the weight of the human soul. Now, as I said, Jones' article on this matter was an attempt to make light of, excuse the phrase, a religious worldview that would take seriously the idea that human beings are, in fact, more than a mass of protoplasm, that there is something more to our lives than just the firing of neurons and the pulsating of cells, that the, that the sum is greater than the parts, that there exists inside the human body, every human body, a divine spark, a, a weightless reality, a consciousness called the human soul. That there is more to this world than what meets the eye, that there are things that cannot be weighed or measured or tracked or scoped or scanned. Increasingly, it seems, there is this rather unnecessary but nevertheless widening gulf between the world of science, which is charged to understand without prejudice how the world works, how the world came into being, how the world can use better its resources, how we can improve human health, and the world of philosophy and theology and religion that tries to understand why the world is as it is, why the world is even here to begin with, why do we live and move and have our being, why do we love and hate and cry and laugh and hope and despair and dream and regret. Two worlds, the world of science and the world of faith, and it seems increasingly that never the twain shall meet. And so maybe it's an emblematic question. How much does the soul weigh? A question proposed by Dr. Jones with a hint of sarcasm, and yet a question that lies deep, deep inside the lives of, dare I say, billions and billions of people. How much does my soul weigh? Or perhaps... We ask it another way and we say, how much weight should I give to that which is going on inside of me? I wonder if that isn't the question that Jesus is asking in this conversation he has with this Samaritan woman at the well. It's an intriguing conversation filled with all sorts of double entendres, talk of water and living water, buckets and wells and spirit and truth and husbands and no husbands. It's certainly a conversation that we can parse and dissect for a thousand sermons. But, but beginning with the fact that Jesus is even having the conversation in a world where men did not publicly speak to women and Jews had no time for Samaritans, might the fact be that Jesus even engages this woman suggests to us that Jesus is after far more about this woman than just her biography and her theology. Might it be that Jesus is after something far deeper? Might it be that Jesus was after understanding 
the weight and value of her soul. In other words, what was she worth? Qualitatively, what was the weight of her soul? Not that there was any question in Jesus' mind about this, the value and weight of her soul, but, but that there might have been a great question in her own mind. In that day and age, in the eyes of the Jews, to be Samaritan, to be female, and to be passed for whatever reason from man to man is to beg the question, what is the weight of my soul? So after Jesus and she have this back and forth about living water and water, Jesus brings up the subject about her husband, or lack thereof. And it's a subject, no doubt, no doubt that reaches into the depths of her soul, the place where all the wounds and the scars are found, and to that place, Jesus reaches, perhaps, to reveal the width and depth and breadth of her soul. So after he asks about her husband and the woman replies with a basic no comment, I have no husband, Jesus won't let it rest. So he reaches back again into the stuff of her soul. He pulls out the truth of her life, pulls out her soul, and reveals something that Jesus has already known, and that is her soul weighs a great deal. That her soul is of great value. Truth is, says Jesus, you've had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. Such were the facts. Now, tradition wants to call this woman loose, but the truth is, this woman has little control in her culture as to which man would take her and which man would discard her. Likely, she was a mere victim of patriarchy, and now the Messiah was standing before her and was asking her questions, questions that no one had ever thought to ask. Because Jesus was Messiah, and he was concerned about the weight of her soul. And so among many things we can take from this text, it would appear that Jesus has great concern over the weight of the human soul. That is to say that in this carnal world where appearances mean everything and judgments are passed all too swiftly and classes and conditions of people are discarded without consideration of stories behind and within, Jesus is eager for people to know that no matter who they are, in the divine laboratory, their souls weigh a great deal. You remember, don't you, when Jesus is on his way to the bedside of a, of a sick little girl and he is, comes against a woman who has suffered from a menstrual condition who has been rendered in the first century as perpetually unclean. You remember how desperately she touched the hem of Jesus' robe and was made clean and how Jesus looked at her not as unclean but as a human being with a soul. You remember, don't you, the woman who had been caught in adultery? No, not the man, mind you, just the woman getting dragged before Jesus. And now every one of the men could see clearly that she was a sinner and that she deserved the punishment of the law and that she deserved every stone she had coming to her. You remember how Jesus looked at her and saw her as something more than sin. He saw her soul, the weightiness of her soul. You remember the leper that Jesus passed on the side of the road, and everyone back then knew what leprosy was about. Leprosy is a moral condition, they said. Leprosy is connected to character and to behavior. Everybody knows that. Except, of course, Jesus. Jesus looks at the leper, and instead of standing back, instead of wagging his finger, instead of passing judgment, Jesus places his hand upon him and says, be well, be well. He sees a soul. He feels the weight of a soul. So it makes sense, doesn't it, when the writer of 1 Peter is explaining the work of Christ on the cross and how, and how the death of Jesus is a once and all for all sacrifice for the sin of the world, that it was in the mind of God to make sure that all the souls in heaven and on earth and under the earth, as Paul would say, to hear the good news that each and every soul matters to God. 
that each and every soul is covered by the blood of the Lamb, that each and every soul weighs a great deal, that though they may have been judged in the flesh, as everyone is judged in the flesh, Peter later says, that they may now live in the Spirit as God does. Is this not an amazing thing of which we speak when we say he was crucified, dead, and buried, and that he descended into hell? That there is no length to which God will not go, that there is no soul outside of God's reach. Nothing, Paul says, nothing shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, neither life nor death shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, that the God who draws nigh to the Samaritan, to the unclean, to the bleeding, to the adulterous, to the morally suspect, the God who draws nigh to these weighty souls is a God who will go as far as he needs to to make sure the good news is heard. Why even, the psalmist says, why even? Why, even if I make my bed in Sheol, in the place of the dead, why, even there thou art with me. Our souls weigh that much. What hope we have for the world to hear that this gospel, isn't it, that we get to deliver to every corner of the universe, to heaven and to earth and to under the earth, that the strife is over, the battle is done, that no matter what in this world has tried to separate us from the love of God, hardship, distress, peril, sword, rulers, powers, principalities, why even death itself, the good news is the victory's won. Remember that great line in Shakespeare's Henry V? At the end of the great battle of Agincourt, King Henry V surveys the battlefield after having finished one of the most valiant battles of English history. The field is strewn with victims of war. It's impossible to tell what the outcome has been. And at that, a French emissary rides up on his stallion. And Henry still does not know how the battle has gone. And he says to the emissary, how goes the day? And the emissary replies, the day is yours. Don't you wonder if that wasn't and isn't the scene when the crucified one, the Lamb of God, who's taken upon himself the sins of the world, who has finished the act of redemption, descends into hell and stands before the spirits, the spirits in bondage, and they ask of the Savior, how goes the day? And the true evangelist says, the day is yours. I think of that good news. When I think of a young man from my adolescent days, I will name him Mark. Mark was a kid I met, I met in seventh grade. The alphabetic order of our last names always put us in proximity to each other. We started out sitting next to each other in homeroom. And while I didn't know him well, I knew him well enough to know that he was a kid who had some issues. And it wasn't long into seventh grade that he began to get into trouble and he began to experiment with the, with the drugs of the day, pot, alcohol, quaaludes. And in the eighth grade it got worse and by ninth grade he was into some pretty tough stuff and on into 10th grade and 11th grade. And and there we would sit in homeroom right next to each other, linked, I'm embarrassed to say, only by the letters of our names. And over time, you could just sort of watch him kind of spiral downward. I watched, but because I was in a different high school group, you know, I didn't do anything about it. He was, dare I say, unclean. I never did stop to consider the weight of his soul. And then one day his desk next to mine in homeroom was empty. And later we saw the teachers in the hallway cleaning out his locker, which again was right next to mine. And then we learned that the night before Mark, while his parents were away, had parked his car in the garage and put a hose into the end of the exhaust pipe and the other through the end, through the window of the car. 
and slipped away. 16 years old. I, I don't know where God was with Mark. I have to think that in his mind, God wasn't much anywhere. God was to him, if anything, very, very far away. But that, of course, is not the point, is it? It's never been, where is God with us? It's where are we with God? And so when I get to that part of the creed and hear the good news, the strife is over and the battle is done, and that the emissary of heaven has galloped into the depths of hell and preached to the spirits in bondage, I'd like to think of that weighty soul, the boy named Mark, when he asks, how goes the day? And he hears the Savior say, the day is yours. The day is yours. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit rest and abide with you now and forevermore. Amen. Amen.